Tonight, as we look into our Bible study in this uh, portion of Scripture here, we're going to be um, looking at a lesson entitled, Humbling Yourself. Humbling Yourself. And we'll begin in just a moment here by reading our text together. 1 Peter chapter 5, and we'll read verses 5 through 7. First Peter chapter 5 and verse number 5 says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. You know, at the root of every sin that we commit is a prideful heart. Sin originated when Satan, or Lucifer as he was then called, said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Pride is the defining feature of rebellion against God. Humility, on the other hand, is at the heart of holy living. And Jesus demonstrated the superiority of humility when He left heaven, humbled Himself, and came to earth to die for our sins. And those who are truly following Christ will strive to live humble lives like Jesus did. And this theme of pride versus humility is the main focus of this passage that we're looking at tonight. Now just to review, going back uh, about a month or so, when we last looked in 1 Peter 5 at the first four verses there, we saw that Peter was addressing the pastors, the elders of the churches, and uh, instructing them how to be the right kind of leaders in the churches. And he said in verse number 3 that pastors are not to be lords over God's heritage, but instead they were to be examples to the flock. And he expands on the idea here of being an example in this area of humility, but we will see that these commands and principles do not apply to pastors only. They are for all Christians. All Christians should live humbly because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The outline is very simple tonight. We're going to break it down into two sections. First of all, we're going to look at what these verses say about our humility to each other. And then secondly, what it says about our humility towards God. So first of all, our humility toward each other is discussed in the first phrases of verse number five. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. Now again, in the verses just previous to this, Peter has been addressing the elders of the church. And it's in this context of pastoral instruction that he gives this command, likewise ye younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Now before we look at the details of this, let's first of all make sure we're on the same page of what it means to submit yourself to someone. The idea of submitting is actually uh, a very 
um, simple idea drawn from a military type uh, situation. And it simply means to put yourself willingly under someone else's authority. To willingly place yourself under someone else's authority. So first of all, submission is willful. You choose to do it. Second of all, what you're choosing to do is to place yourself beneath someone else in one way or another. That's the idea of submission here. Now, the primary application would be, first of all, in regards to the order of authority among church leadership, as that's who he's addressing in these earlier verses. And what he says here is that the younger are to submit yourselves unto the elder. So the general rule is that those who are younger in age or experience are to submit to those who are older and more experienced. Now, as we look in the New Testament, we do find that there's quite a lot that's said about the organization of the church and how the leadership is to be um, um, organized as well. And when we think about this idea of multiple leaders in the church and how they interact with each other. I think Acts chapter 15 gives us a very good case study of how this looks in real life. In Acts chapter 15, we have the record of the Jerusalem council. And we're not going to go through this um, tonight in, in specifics, but just as an overview, the Jerusalem council was called together to decide really and to answer for once and for all the question, did the Gentiles have to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved? There were some who were teaching that they had to be, they had to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved or maybe to be sanctified, but was it necessary? So they called this, this uh, council together and there were, according to Acts 15, there were many apostles and elders that were present there. And for some period of time, there was a lot of discussion and a lot of debate until finally Peter stands up to give his testimony. And that's the first specific testimony recorded. Now, we know that P Peter had seniority, uh, probably in age to a great degree, but definitely in experience because he was one of the first apostles that Jesus called. He gives his testimony, and then Barnabas and Saul stand up. These are another two men who were key figures in the church that we would say had seniority. But then finally, James, who was most likely the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, stood up, and he was the one who concluded the whole thing. And so there was an evidence there of a, um, a, a plurality of leadership, but an order and an order of authority as well. Now, this is not the main thrust of the message tonight, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. But as God blesses a church with multiple men involved in leadership and pastoral care, which, by the way, I did just say multiple men. I don't know if you're watching the news this week, but the Southern Baptist Convention is having a hard time right now figuring out if women can be pastors. And they're having a big debate about that again as we speak. It's going on this week. The Bible says that if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. He has to be the husband of one wife. He has to rule well his house. Lots of other indications in Scripture that God has called men to be the pastors and leaders in the local church. That being said... As God blesses a church and multiple men are involved in the leadership and the pastoral care, it is important that order and authority be maintained properly because much damage can be done to a church when those in leadership are operating in pride instead of in humility. 
Contention and strife will inevitably result. Proverbs 13.10 says that only by pride cometh contention. 1 Corinthians 14.40, let all things be done decently and in order. You know, when I was a kid, I thought that verse was written about cleaning your room. That's what my mom always said. I had to clean my room. God said things would be done decently and in order. Anyway, that is a good application of that verse. Don't get me wrong. But actually, when you look in 1 Corinthians 14.40, it's talking about how a church is run and how a church service is to be operated and it's supposed to be done decently and in order. So to be most specific, I believe that was the first target that Peter was shooting at, if you will, in this verse when he said, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. But from there, Peter works outward to include a mutual submission between all Christians. So let's kind of work out from here and draw a couple of principles that will be helpful to us. First of all, let's consider the general principle to be drawn from this passage that the young should respect their elders. Ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. You know, that is not just a culturally accepted practice. That is a biblical principle. Those who are older than us, guess what? They've lived longer. You know what that means? It means that they've experienced more, and very often they've been able to gain a certain amount of wisdom that we may not have yet gained. So it doesn't matter if you are 10, whether you are 30, or whether you are 80, someone who's older than you, there should be a certain amount of respect for that person simply because they've been here longer than you. That's a biblical principle. 1 Timothy 5.1 says, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren. Leviticus 19.32 is a good verse. It says, Thou shalt rise up before the, the hoary head, the gray-headed ones, and honor the face of the old man, and fear thy God, I am Lord. God says that we are to honor those who are older. Now that being said, we must also honestly recognize that just because someone is older does not necessarily mean that they are wiser. There are a lot of older folks today who are acting very foolishly. And I'm not saying that we blindly follow their example or their teaching just because they're older. That's not what the Bible teaches us because with age comes wisdom is not always true. And that's why Proverbs 16.31 says, The hoary head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. If it be found in the way of righteousness. So there should be a general respect of the young for the older. Let me say to our younger people in here tonight, and by that I mean if there's anybody in here older than you. I'm not going to guess who the oldest one is in here tonight, but it's all but, all but one of you is younger than everybody else, okay? So let me just say to those of us who are younger that we must, according to Scripture, respect those who are older. And if we're wise, we will listen to them, we will glean from them, we will learn from their mistakes so we don't have to make the same ones, understanding that they're not perfect, and hopefully they'll admit that too, but our, our, our starting point ought always to be that the younger respect the elder. I think about the story of Job. 
Job had all these tragedies happen to him, and his three friends show up to try and comfort him. Well, the way they tried to comfort him, they first of all, they sat with him for a week without saying a word. I think if they'd have stayed at that point, they probably would have been more help. The problem came when they opened their mouth. And they began to indict Job of secret sins and saying, well, Job, there must be something wrong in your life because bad things only happen to bad people. And this goes on until chapter 32 of the book of Job, this back and forth between Job and his three friends, until finally one of my favorite unknown Bible characters, Elihu, speaks up. Elihu, in Job 32, it says, Now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken, because they were elder than he. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled, and Elihu the son of Barakel the Buzite answered and said, I am young, and ye are very old. Wherefore I was afraid, and durst not show you mine opinion. I said, Days should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth him understanding. Great men are not always wise, neither do the aged understand judgment. So there's a balance there. Yes, the young should respect the elder. But the verse doesn't stop there. Back in our text, 1 Peter 5, 5, the Bible goes on to say this, Yea, all of you be subject one to another. All right, how many of you would fall under the category of all of you? Raise your hand. All right, very good. All right, how many of you would fall into the other, other category of one another? Very good. All right, at some point there, we all raised our hand twice. At least we should have. Because what this verse is saying is that this humble attitude of submission and a, and a unity and peace between us is supposed to be governing all of our relationships, all of our interactions. So this concept of mutual submission is clearly stated here. Now, I think in this context of elder versus younger, sometimes you have a problem of an older person who's acting foolishly but excusing it by their age and, and, uh, and rebuking young people in the process and lording over the young people their age. Now listen, if a pastor is not supposed to lord over the flock, an older person shouldn't lord over a younger person either. That is, Christians should practice mutual submission. Ephesians 5.21 says, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. That's an important phrase in that verse, in the fear of the Lord. You know, we don't submit to one another for our own sake. I don't submit to you, you don't submit to me, me because we're so great, we're so deserving of it. No, it's in the fear of the Lord. We don't submit to each other for our own sakes, but for the Lord's sake. We submit to each other because we fear God. I have enough respect for God that I will respect you because God values you highly. I should value you highly as well. So the respect should be demonstrated then in this mutual, humble submission to one another. The problem is each of us tends to think too much of ourselves. Either we think too often about ourselves or we think too highly about ourselves. 
But the problem boils down to the fact that we just think too much of us. And Romans 12.3 tells us that rather than thinking highly of ourselves, we are to think soberly. That is to have a correct view of yourself. It doesn't mean that you have a low view of yourself. Now, I don't, I don't buy into this self-esteem uh, nonsense that you know, everybody tries to trace all of our problems back to a lack of self-esteem. That's not, that's not Scripture, okay? Our problem, according to Scripture, is not that we think too low of ourselves. Our problem, according to Scripture, is we just think too much of ourselves altogether. So we're to think rightly. There are some good things about you that you should believe. You are a special creation of God. You are loved by God. God has given you certain talents, certain abilities that He wants you to use. He wants to enable you to fulfill His calling. These are good things about ourselves that we should think, but we're to think soberly. That means we're not to have an inflated view of ourselves. You are flawed. You are limited. You can only do so much. You only know so much. It's good for you to keep that in mind. Now, when we have this attitude of humble submission, the benefits are, are this. It prevents strife and it promotes unity. Humble submission prevents strife and promotes unity. You think about this in any relationship context, whether you're thinking about husband and wife, parent to child, in a church, friendships, on the job, wherever it is, any relationship context. If there is an attitude of humility there between the two parties, it will prevent strife and promote unity. Look, we're going to have disagreements. We're not always going to see things the same way. We're coming at life from two totally different perspectives. And when we disagree, we have a choice to make. Am I going to be arrogant and prideful and say, no, my way is the right way? Or am I going to be humble enough to say, maybe you've got it right? And when we approach each other that way, there's no strife. Instead, we can have unity. And we can even come to the point that we do agree to disagree. And we say, you know what? I don't see it the same way you do, but that's okay. I don't have to. You'll answer to God for you. I'll answer to God for me. But we can still work together. We can still fellowship. And there can be peace between us. I think of it this way. Humility is the oil that keeps the work of the Lord running smoothly. Humility is the oil that keeps the work of the Lord running smoothly. Now, unless you drive an electric car, your engine in your car... One of the most vital things about it is the lubrication system using motor oil. Your car is going to have at least a gallon, most likely more, of motor oil in it. And it's going to have to be changed regularly. Now the job of the motor oil, among other things, is to make sure that all the metal parts that are touching one another do not have too much friction. Because if there's too much friction... Not only will it build up heat, it will file away those metal parts and they will uh, begin to distort and ultimately the engine will fail. It's vital. It's what keeps it running smoothly. Well, a church, a job, a business, a home, it's all the same way. If you want it to run smoothly, there's got to be something there that's going to keep the friction down. And that's what humility does. Let nothing be done 
through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. That's what Philippians 2 verse number 3 says. Now I want you to notice something with me about this command before we move on. Notice that the command is that we are to submit ourselves, not to subjugate others. What's the difference? Well, when I submit myself, that is a willful action on my part. I choose to submit. But when you subjugate someone, you are forcing them lower than you. Never in Scripture are we commanded to do that to others. This verse is not meant to be a club that we use to beat others down with. Instead, it's a measuring stick that we are to judge ourselves by. And for the ultimate example of this kind of humility, we look to Christ. Because in order to accomplish the plan of salvation, Jesus had to humble Himself. He left heaven to come to earth. He became a man, and He made Himself of no reputation, but took upon Him the form of a servant, Philippians 2 says. And then it says that He humbled Himself even further, and He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You understand that execution on the cross was one of the most humiliating forms of death ever invented this was a public execution. And even in the gospel record, we find that people came by and they wagged their heads at Jesus and they mocked him. And he, was, he, he died in humiliation. Why did he do that? For you and for me. See, by humbling himself and dying on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin so that we could be saved. And if Christ would do that for us, we ought to be willing to humble ourselves for one another. It's not all about you. It's not all about me. It's all about Christ. We submit ourselves one to another for Christ's sake. Now to help us understand this attitude of humility that we're to demonstrate to one another, the Holy Spirit uses a phrase in our text. It says that we are to be clothed with humility. Clothed with humility. Just like this morning or this afternoon or this evening, whichever the case was for you, whenever you finally left the house today, you did something very important, I hope. You got dressed. You didn't go out and face the world until you were dressed properly. And just like we get dressed before heading out to face the world each day, as Christians, we are to constantly make sure that we are robed in a humble spirit. Think about the clothes we wear. Outward fashion and style is very important to the world. As of 2022, the global fashion industry was valued at $1.7 trillion. That's trillion with a T. The world thinks a lot of that. Our Culture is obsessed with appearances. But you know what God is more concerned with? He's more concerned with issues of the heart. And for the Christian, humility is always in style. 
Humility is always in style. Back in uh, chapter 3 of 1 Peter, Peter touched on this idea of outward appearances versus inward character when he said to the wives, whose adorning let it not be the outward adorning of plating of hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. That instruction, though, was not just for married women. No Christian should be consumed with worldly fashion, clothing trends, or current styles to the point that they neglect the hidden man of the heart. Now, that doesn't mean we should dress sloppily or be gaudy or wear ratty clothes. We can dress neatly. We can dress appropriately. But what it does mean is that we should focus on the most important things. And whatever style of clothing we might wear at any given time, we are to be covered with humility. Turn with me to John chapter 13 for a moment. Again, we find that Jesus gave us the perfect example of this, clothing ourselves with humility. John chapter 15, excuse me, John chapter 13. Look at verse 4. This is right after they've had the Last Supper together. The Bible says that he, Jesus, riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. You see the phrase in verse 4, he girded himself? That is the same, translated from the same word that 1 Peter 5 says we are to be clothed with humility. And what Jesus did in John 13 was show us a very vivid example of that as he put on, literally put on, the garments of a servant. He girded himself with a towel and then washed the stinky, nasty feet of the disciples. Yes, they were stinky, nasty feet. They were wearing sandals walking on dirt roads all day, okay? Jesus did that. And he did that as an example to all of his followers. He said, as I've done to you, do you also one to another. Be willing to be clothed in humility to serve each other. And really that was just a picture of what Jesus did when He came to this earth. He took off His garment of glory and He put on a robe of humanity in the ultimate act of humility. Listen to these verses again from Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. That was the ultimate humiliation. And Jesus did that for us. Christians must have humility toward each other and demonstrate it through mutual submission. But then number two, let's notice what the Bible has to say about our humility toward God. 1 Peter 5, 5 goes on to say, For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Humility is really not an option for the Christian. And we learn why in this last phrase of verse 5. When we refuse to humble ourselves, we shut ourselves off from the grace of God. Now, I don't mean by that that we lose our salvation. Do not misunderstand. We are saved by grace, and when we are, our eternal destiny is settled once and for all. We cannot lose that. But there is a daily grace that we need from God that when we live pridefully, we shut ourselves off from. That's what the verse says. God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Proud people are consumed with themselves. They want everyone to look at them. They want everyone to think about them. That's what prideful people are all about. That's why pride is an offense against God. Because it's an attempt to exalt one's self above God. It's an attempt to take the attention that belongs to God. Someone who's, who's always trying to get everyone's attention. Someone who's always consumed with everyone thinking about them, looking at them, listening to them. When it's all about them, they are taking away something that rightfully belongs to God. Pride is an attempt to displace God by a heart that ultimately has rejected his authority. This is why pride is so bad. By the way, it's no accident that the celebration of desires and behaviors that God calls an abomination is designated by the term pride. Pride month. We're in the middle of that right now. That's no accident that they call it that. It's because they reject the authority of God. And it's all about them. It's what they want. They want your attention. They want your, val- your validation. It's not about tolerance. It never was. It's validation. Either you affirm what they think and what they say, or you'll be punished. It's pride. The Bible says that God hates pride. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, "These, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to Him. And the very first thing on that list is a proud look. A proud look. Now, what does the Bible mean when it says God resisteth the proud? Well, turn over to Luke chapter 18, and we find a parable that Jesus told that illustrates what it means. Luke chapter 18, And verse number 9 says that he spake this parable unto certain 
which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, notice Jesus' words in verse 14. I tell you, this man, talking about the publican, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Do you notice the Pharisee? how obsessed he was with himself. Five times he uttered the word I in his quote-unquote prayer to God. He wasn't praying to God. In fact, Jesus said he prayed thus with himself. You know what this was? This was a monologue extolling his own virtues for all who could hear. The publican, on the other hand, stood off in the corner, couldn't even look up to heaven, and just said, Lord, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, the humble man was justified, the proud man was not. When we lift ourselves up in pride, God resists us. If we will not humble ourselves, then ultimately God will have to humiliate us by setting himself against us. That's literally what the word resisteth means there. He sets himself against us. God will work for you, or against you rather, and not for you. When you are a prideful person, God will work against you and not for you. Life will be unnecessarily difficult. The benefit of humility, then, is that God will give you grace. He will, that is, enable you to do what you need to do. He'll bless you with many good things, but above and beyond even what you strictly need in this life. And the verses say that if we humble ourselves, He will exalt us. He will exalt us. And I love that the Holy Spirit put this phrase in there, in due time. In the right time. Now let me ask you whose time is right? Yours or God's? Mine or God's? God's. And God's time is rarely our time. Every once in a while, the two will coincide. But I found that in my life, my problem is usually I'm running ahead of God. I think something should have been done already. God's time is the best time. His time is the right time. It's the due time. God will exalt you in due time, in His time. When you humble yourself, God says that He will do that. For some, that might mean advancement in this life. You may see a measure of growing influence or wealth or fame. But for others, the due time for that exaltation might not come until we get to heaven. And ultimately, that is the exaltation that we look forward to. Because one day, if you're a Christian, you're going to be in heaven, and the Bible says that you will be glorified with Christ. 
Romans 8, 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. We need to humble ourselves. And then we come to verse 7, 1 Peter chapter 5. If you're not there, turn back there with me. This is probably a familiar verse to you. Casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Most of the time when we hear that verse, we don't hear verses 5 and 6 with it, do we? It's just by itself. And it is a wonderful promise. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not uh, belittling the use of this verse by itself in other contexts. But when we put it in this context of humility before God, it takes, an on, it takes on another level of meaning. First of all, let's talk about what does it mean to cast our cares on the Lord. The word cares here has the idea of concerns that distract us. I thought this was fascinating. It comes from a word that literally means to divide or to distract. And so cares are, are things that concerns that distract us. Now these concerns are often based on real circumstances that could potentially result in a negative outcome. And that might range from merely being inconvenienced to a, something that is totally life-altering. And there's all kinds of concerns that we might have. And so they create in us a certain measure of anxiety. That is a dread of what's going to happen. There's an uncertainty there. I have this concern and I don't know how it's going to turn out and it could be really bad and now I'm getting a little bit, a little bit afraid of what might happen. And that then morphs into worry when we begin to then imagine the possible outcomes and live in fear of what might happen. You see, we're always going to be faced with concerns. There's always going to be cares. And there's always going to be a potential that those concerns and those, con those cares can distract us. Distract us from what? or rather distract us from who? See, the danger is that we will look at our problems more than God. Our focus is supposed to be on God, not on our problems. That's why we're commanded to be careful for nothing. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, take no thought for the morrow. Our concerns distract us from the one who has promised that he will care for us. That's what our cares are. Look, it's not... You don't need to imagine that it's not actually a problem. Whatever the concern is, it is a real problem. I'm not trying to talk you out of that. I'm not trying to say, oh, you're just blowing it out of proportion. It might be a really big problem. But what do you do with that? Do you let it distract you? Do you let it consume you? No, what we need to do is we need to cast that care on the Lord. We do live in a real world where things cannot be neglected without causing more problems. And so the answer to deal with this problem properly is to cast it on the Lord. Offload your worries onto God. And that 
is an act of humility. Because before you can cast your care upon God, you have to admit that you can't solve it yourself. Only then will you be willing to trust God to solve it for you. So in this context of humbling ourselves before God, we're told to cast our cares on Him. If we, if we kind of think about this from the other direction, we can conclude rightly that worry and anxiety then are acts of pride. Say, that sounds pretty harsh. It's the truth. When you are anxious about something, when you're worrying about it, you, you, you are living in fear of the imagined possibilities, it's because you have refused to humbly let go of it and turn it over to God. You're still hanging on to it, thinking about the problem, thinking it over, evaluating it, you're wargaming it, you're simulating possible outcomes, you're trying to arrive at the correct solution, it's driving you crazy, but that's what you're doing. Instead, you need to give it to God. No one is capable of solving every problem except God. And here's the wonderful thing. He invites you to give the problem to Him. Give Him your cares. And in return, He has promised that He will care for you. Casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. He will solve your problems. He will supply your needs. Psalm 55, 22, Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Think here, we have a, a direct link between our humility and the grace of God. That when we cast our cares on Him, in return, He gives us the strength and the endurance that we need. As we let go of our problems and we trust God to solve them, He will work on our behalf. Instead of resisting us, instead of setting Himself against us, He will work for us and ultimately He will lift us up in His time. You see the benefit tonight of humbling yourself? See, the world thinks if you want to get ahead, you've got, you've got to climb to the top. God says... No, in my kingdom, the one who humbles himself is the one who's truly getting ahead. All Christians should be humble. And if we do not humble ourselves, we are setting ourselves up for a fall. What does Proverbs 16, 18 say? Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We must humble ourselves before each other and before God submitting to each other, and casting our cares on the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of Christ that we've been reminded of tonight who so willingly humbled himself for us so that we might be saved. And Lord, I pray that we would live humbly to reflect his character to the world around us and to glorify you in all that we do. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.